new with us, uh, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians in his uh, first epistle to them. Paul started this church and is now writing to address various uh, concerns that he's been made aware of, various concerns or questions that they're, they're asking him. And uh, the last several weeks, we've uh, been looking at the matters of uh, singleness and marriage, and many of you would be happy to know we've moved on now to another subject uh, that Paul is going to uh, deal with over the next uh, three chapters related to uh, meat sacrificed to idols. And so let's get excited about that. Uh, and uh, now let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, timeless nature of your word and the timely nature of your word. And so we would pray now that your um, inspired word would be brought home to our hearts and that this passage, uh, Lord, we would see the relevance of it and live in light of it for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been uncomfortable eating a certain food before. It's always a fun icebreaker to uh, play the game, what's the grossest thing you've ever eaten? Uh, in New Orleans recently, I introduced my friend Doug to blackened alligator. And I told Doug, I said, man, you've got to try this. It's phenomenal. And Doug, who has the diet of a 12-year-old, uh, was not a fan. He, he said, don't you know that the devil is a serpent? Uh, he went on to call LSU Lizard State University. It was one of those moments where you just want to get your video out as he did uh, try blackened alligator and, and uh, just watch his face as he uh, took a bite of it. I've watched these shows, perhaps you've seen them, where people eat all manner of stuff, from tuna eyeballs to fried tarantulas to jellied moose notes, uh, and it's always amazing uh, the kinds of things that people might eat. And what we're dealing with today is not what is gross, but rather, what do you do if meat has been sacrificed to an idol? Now, you may first hear that and look at this text and think that this is very irrelevant to our lives. Most of us didn't go to uh, the grocery store this week and observe a meat sacrifice to idols section, um, though I didn't go to Whole Foods this week. They might have something like that over at Whole Foods, but um, <laughs> uh, you, you, you may think that maybe one guy in here is excited about it. Kind of like this past week, Detroit Mercer was 0-26, the college basketball team, and they won their first game over IUPUI, or Ui Pui, if you prefer. And there were like 38 people in attendance, and one guy stormed the court cheering for, for Detroit Mercer. Uh, and it's kind of like that maybe you think with meat sacrificed to idols. It's like one guy who's really excited about this. Uh, how could this possibly uh, be relevant to our lives? But when you realize that this passage has a lot to say about Christian decision-making and unity in the church, then you see that it should be a, a matter of great interest to each of us. Sometimes Christian decision-making is really straightforward. We've got the Ten Commandments. We know what we can do, what we can't do, and it's pretty straightforward. But sometimes Christian decision-making is complex. And this passage helps us by giving us three important categories that I want to give you now, and then we'll come back to at the end. These categories are as follows. First of all, knowledge. What does God's Word say? Second area is conscience. What is conscience? Sometimes we think about, because of cartoons, maybe that conscience, you've got a little demon on one shoulder and a little angel on another shoulder, uh, and you're trying to obey the angel. But by conscience, we mean your consciousness about what you believe to be right or wrong in a matter, particularly in a gray matter or a disputable matter. And Christians, you might be surprised, often disagree about disputable matters uh, because some may come from a different context, a different background, 
They may have different values and so on. So knowledge, conscience, and thirdly, love. Love is asking the question, what decision is, is going to build up my brother or sister? What, what, what can I do to encourage them in the faith? Now, we're going to lay all of that on top of what Paul says here uh, on meat sacrifice to idols. But before we jump into verse 1, I, I want you just to see how chapters 8, 9, and 10 fit together. Um, because, because they do. Chapter 8, we're looking at uh, today, Paul basically tells one group of believers, we could call them the knowers, those who are in the know, that uh, you do have a right to, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but, but you need to make sure you're not causing a brother to stumble. Um, particularly related to dining around in or around a temple. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. That you may have this right, but you, want to, you may want to give up that right for the sake of a weaker brother or sister. Chapter 9, he illustrates how he has given up a right, that is to take financial compensation for his ministry. And so what he's asking them to do is not something he's unwilling to do. And then he returns to the topic of idolatry in chapter 10. This time, he says, if you're dining in, at a temple when there's a pagan ritual going on, you must flee idolatry because you're actually uh, participating in demon worship. And so there is a sort of a social idea of eating in and around a temple that is more like a restaurant, and there's an event that's more like a pagan ritual, and he uh, explicitly forbids that action. Then there's another issue in chapter 10, toward the end. Sometimes this meat was then taken to the marketplace that had been previously sacrificed to an idol, and the Corinthians are like, can we eat that? And Paul says, it depends. <laughs> if you don't know where it came from, you can eat it. <laughs> if someone informs you, or you may harm their conscience, you cannot eat it. Clear? All right. Now, you, you can imagine the scene here. You've got all these pagan temples that line the streets of Corinth, and uh, uh, animals are sacrificed to the so-called gods. And so the temples served in many ways like a butcher shop. Um, and the, they had dining halls, so they were like banqueting halls around the temple area. So your trade guild might have a dinner in one of those halls, or maybe uh, it was a special occasion you wanted to celebrate. Um, wh what's the deal? Well, you notice down in chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, that is knowledge that idols don't really exist, but they, they're not there yet. They're young in the faith. They're weak in the faith. Will they not be encouraged to participate? You might lead them into sin. You might lead them back into more pagan idolatry. So while you might have a, a right to, to eat there because you know idols are nothing, you need to pay attention to those around you and be, be careful. So there were situations where these temples felt more like t today, like a modern restaurant than uh, a pagan ritual. If it's a ritual, chapter 10, flee idolatry. What do we do when it's just sort of around these uh, temples or in the temple dining hall? Uh, he says, again, that uh, you have a right to eat it, but you may want to forbid, uh, forego it for the sake of the conscience of your, um, your brother or sister. There are several pieces of archaeology that have come down through the years uh, that highlight kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, there was, there's a number of invitations on papyrus that have been found like this one. Harias asked you to dine at the dining room uh, of uh, Serepion at a banquet of, the, of Lord Serpus tomorrow, namely the 11th from the ninth hour. Um, the 11th of the ninth hour. Now that sounds like a really strange invitation to us. I doubt anyone received one of those this past week at Valentine's Day. Um, 
But it's basically Harias is asking his family and friends to join him for a meal in midday in the temple. So what do you do? Well, there were some who were worried about avoiding all contact with society because you could appear rude. This could have a negative impact on you socially. It could limit evangelistic conversations. It could even make you look like a bad citizen. So Paul has to thread the needle, as I'm going to try to do today, to deal with this rather complex issue. And in chapter 8, the big idea is you may want to give up your right for the sake of, the, of, of, of your uh, weaker brother or sister. Now, it's hard for us to imagine uh, a comparison today in the western states. You go in the mission field, you'll, this is going to be way more connected to uh, what Paul is saying here. But maybe today, if, let's just say you go to an Asian restaurant and you see a statue of Buddha. Do you go to another restaurant? I would say, personally, idols are nothing, let's eat. But you might have a brother or sister who've been converted from that background, and they have a big problem with it. And so you may want to think about it. Witherington summarizes what we're dealing with in chapters 8, 9, and 10 this way. It's about the venue, not the menu. It's about the character and context of the meal than the meat itself. Okay? Now, we can bring it closer to home with our disputed uh, matters. We don't dispute idolatry, idolatry is idolatry, but what about R-rated movies, alcohol in moderation, dancing, Lord forbid, smoking, <laughs> uh, eating places that have a bar, cheering for the New York Yankees, and so on. That's for you, Carlos. Uh, that wasn't necessary, was it? Um, we know that's evil. Uh, Romans, Romans 14 speaks about these, these issues as well, but there Paul's dealing with Jewish diets and days. This is about idolatry, which is a matter of even more uh, seriousness to him. And the big idea is build up your brothers and sisters. You are, in the words of, of John, your brother's keeper. It's not simply about what you're allowed to do, but what is best for my brothers and sisters. And he says, don't do anything that will defile their conscience, destroy their faith, or cause them to stumble in their walk with Christ. All right? Now let's look at the text in three parts. Paul lays down first a fundamental principle. Secondly, he uh, offers a central confession. And thirdly, we'll look at a vital consideration. So first, a fundamental principle, and that principle is that love builds up. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It seems that, again, there was one group of Christians that were arguing uh, against eating food sacrificed to idols, the weaker brother in this text. But this other group, the knowers, or some call them know-it-alls, were saying there's no problem with it since an idol is not a thing. And so uh, it sounds like a, a strong argument that they're making. And what you see as you read this text is that Paul actually agrees theologically with the knowers, but he actually advocates for the weaker brother or sister. He says, yes, we are all knowers in a sense, that's fair enough, but here's the problem, he says, you're using your knowledge incorrectly. You're being recklessly insensitive. Love must regulate our liberty. If they would combine the knowledge with love, that's, that's a powerful combination. Then you would humbly be building up your brothers and sisters. And here, Paul is, uh, we, we anticipate Paul's uh, chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, where there he says, you might understand all mysteries. 
have all prophetic powers, have faith that you can move a mountain, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. He is prioritizing love to a church that was filled with knowledge. A very important word for our church. We must prioritize love. Christian maturity is not just about what you know. It's about how you live. And love builds up. But there is always a potential problem with knowledge. Arrogance. People who proudly think they know it all, Paul says, but you lack love. Do not use your knowledge in unloving ways. Build up. The language here for build up is the, the, the language referring to the construction of a building. What is it that I can do that can make another brother or sister more complete? What can I do to, to make another brother or sister stronger? It's not acting arrogantly toward them. It's not being recklessly insensitive to them. No, that's the aim. We want to build up one another. Later in chapter 14, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And he says the purpose of prophecy there is to build up the church. That's why we have gifts. That's why we have knowledge. Not to be superior to others or to, you know, but, but actually to, to build them up. Then he says something that's actually quite humbling in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> so why, why boast about incomplete knowledge? That's what you have. Later again in chapter 13, he says, we, we only know dimly. We see through, as the old translation says, through a glass darkly. You may have true knowledge, but it's incomplete still. We still live in this fallen world. And how could it be otherwise? We, we never know everything about God. He's God. He's eternal, infinite, hidden from our sight. As uh, citizens, uh, contemporary band sings uh, on their new album, one line, I can't find the edges of you. He's majestic. As the psalmist says, his greatness is unsearchable. He says elsewhere, I want to tell of your deeds of knowledge, though they pass my knowledge. So that should humble us. Further, what we do know about God isn't because we achieved it. It's because he's chosen to make himself known to us. He's revealed to us the word of the cross. Otherwise, we wouldn't know him. And so there should never be arrogance in a believer's heart when you think about these things. It should actually do the, do the opposite of that, which is humble us. Um, then Paul says something very striking, doesn't he, in verse 3? But if anyone loves God, and you, you would anticipate Paul saying, if anyone loves God, he knows God. But notice what he says. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. He says, the knowledge that really matters is not the knowledge that you possess. The knowledge that really matters is that God knows you. God knows you. That, that's relational language. That's covenantal language. He says in Galatians that we've come to know God, and then he says, rather to be known by God. It is true to say that we know God. But here, Paul is saying, you're known by him. And what, a, what an amazing thing that is. And one of the evidences that we have this relationship with God, that we're known by God, is that we love him. And by extension, we love others. In other words, when it falls on you that I've been loved by God, I'm known by God, what does that do but just melt your heart with love and humility? So, as we move, think about the, the following verses before we move there, this is a very helpful paragraph, isn't it? Christians will disagree on disputable matters. What do we do in these instances? 
It's good to follow Augustine's line, though. I'm not sure he, he said it. He's always attributed to him. In essential things, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essential things, unity. What's essential? 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel. What is essential? Next paragraph, God. Um, we want to be a church that majors on the essentials, right? And I know that word is very overused in society, so we're not using it like essential oils. It's a very overrated name, I think. Uh, I, I like the oils a lot. They're very helpful oils, um, but they should call them that. They're, they're useful oils. They're not really essential. Uh, you know, they're special oils, um, but, but yeah. But how about not quite essential, but still wonderful oils? Uh, <laughs> If you work for them, I'm just messing up here. I'm just trying to illustrate a point, okay? But when we say essentials, we mean the essential things. That's what binds us together. In non-essentials, there's liberty, and in all things, charity. I think that's helpful. The question, in other words, is not what am I allowed to do, but what will build up other people? It's an others-oriented way of life, not about me. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. If we lived by that verse, <laughs> today I'm going to count everybody more significant than myself. There'd be a lot of change, wouldn't there? All right, let's move on to the second point. He's laid down this fundamental principle, and now secondly, he goes to a central confession. One God and one Lord. Now, if he didn't give us this paragraph we may be tempted to say, in light of what Paul has just said, is that knowledge doesn't really matter or truth doesn't matter. But you notice the balance of this passage. Paul doesn't say, love wins, love triumphs, don't worry about all the, all the, the, the theological you know, points. No, Paul agrees with the knowers theologically. Um, and knowledge does matter. What he's saying is you're using your knowledge incorrectly. That that knowledge is making you arrogant. That you're forgetting that Christian life is about building up your brothers and sisters. And so he goes to the knowledge part now. He goes to the truth part when he says, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is uh, no God but one. Now this is all throughout the Bible. Psalm 15, for example. Idols have no ears, they can't hear. They have no eyes, they can't see. They have no mouth, they can't talk. They're nothing. The prophets mock them for making an idol out of wood and then bowing down to it. And that's what Paul says here. And then he supports, uh, uh, supports that by saying, for although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So these idols are just so-called gods, there is one God, not many little gods. And this got Paul in a lot of trouble in the first century. In uh, Acts, he started a riot when Alexander the silversmith got all of his tradesmen together, and he said, this guy is throwing the whole city in an uproar because he's saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. And then Paul goes on in verse 6 to highlight two persons of the triune God, the Father and the Son. And this is a remarkable statement about the deity of Jesus in verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
Paul seems to be adapting the Jewish Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema was like the John 3.16 for Jews that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your might. Every Jew knew the Shema. It was a confession of monotheism in a world of polytheism. But you notice here that Paul cites the Shema and then he inserts Jesus into the center of it. That's pretty remarkable what he does. Now notice five things quickly about what he says in verses six and seven. Just five. Um, Here I'm I'm indebted to Barnett uh, following his line here. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has now revealed himself through Christ as God the Father. We know God as Father. Even though the fatherhood of God is found in the Old Testament, this reality is brought home in a striking way in the New Testament. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. Christians can pray to Abba, Father. We know this Father to be the Father of Luke 15 when the prodigal runs home. And that Father put a robe on him, a ring on his hand. He threw a party for his wayward son. That's the Father that we worship today. That's the Father we get to pray to today. That's the Father who will receive you today. I've told the story before. Ernest Hemingway wrote about a story in Spain where a father uh, was searching for his estranged teenage son named Paco. And he went to a hotel, and then he put an ad in a newspaper. Dear Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And the next day, 800 boys named Paco showed up at the hotel. (laughs) All seeking love and forgiveness from their father. And that's the father we have. Secondly, Paul states that the father and the Lord are one. The son is co-unique with the father. He shares in the unique deity of God the father. And thirdly, remarkably, there's a dynamic relationship between the Father and the Lord Jesus in relationship to all things. Notice, all things are from the Father. All things are through the Son. You can sense Paul worshiping through these prepositions. In, from, through. The Father is the source, and the Son is the agent of all things. Fourth, we are Christians through the Son, who is our Lord. He is the agent not just of creation, but of new creation. We know God as Father. We have a saving relationship with God because of Jesus. And finally, the Father, who is the source of all things, is the one for whom we exist. Did you believe that? That believers exist for for the glory of the Father. Our lives are for His fame and His honor. So Paul here is saying some remarkable truth about the nature of God. In other words, he's saying, well, why mess with idols? Idols are nothing. This is our God. Or as the creed says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Or as the hymn says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Lord was a very important term 
It was referred not only to the deities, but also to Caesar, the political leaders. And the Christian says, Jesus is Lord. And by saying Jesus is Lord, we're saying Caesar is not. We bow to one. And if the church in this situation would have been surrendering to the Lord Jesus, then they would have gladly given up their own agendas. And so he lays down a fundamental principle. He makes a central confession. And finally, he gets back to the topic at hand with a vital consideration. And that consideration is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. Back to the issue of uh, food sacrifice idol, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but though but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he says, what he just said in this paragraph about these gods aren't gods, this is the real God. Some newer believers who've been saved out of paganism still need to grow in their knowledge. They, they could be eating this food thinking that really is offered to an idol. And so he says you need to be careful around them so as to not damage their conscience. The way you build them up and see them grow in understanding is not by looking down upon them or mistreating them, but by being humble with them and loving and patient with them. Further, those of you who are in the know, notice verse 8, and you think you have the right to eat this food, don't think that that gives you any special standing with God. You're not, you don't have better standing with God than the weaker brother who is still really green in his faith. Food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we eat it and not better off if we do. <laughs> in uh, Romans 14, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says, take care, verse 9, that this right of yours, they seem to have a right to eat in these places, again, when it's not part of this pagan ritual, which he clearly forbids in chapter 10, Make sure that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And the problem here is not just that you would upset them. You know, like I, I could see how you would read this passage and think, well, um, they're just being overly sensitive. But the issue is not just, a, it's not a minor issue. What he's saying is if you go down this road and they see you uh, eating, in, in verse 10, in this idle temple, they may be encouraged uh, if their conscience is weak, to actually go back to paganism. It's, you see how serious it is. Uh, it, it's not a minor thing. And so it's not just that you would upset them. Uh, you know, I, I, you might just say, well, so what? Um, no, it's, the issue is you might mislead them. You may redirect them. And, and Paul knows how damaging that is. So he says, we need to build them up the right way. And the eater could destroy the weak person by encouraging him or her to return to that kind of paganism. That's in verses 11 and 12. And thus, you would be sinning against your brothers and sisters. And you notice how he says at the end of verse 12, that sin is against Christ. This is an important theological principle just in general, that when we sin against our brothers and sisters, we sin against Christ himself. And he says, that is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. Verse 11. Just pause and think about that for a moment. When you're interacting with one another, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, think about Jesus died for this person. And you can put a name in there. Christ died for Brian. Wouldn't it change the way we treat each other? Think about each other. 
And then the practical takeaway is given there in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will not eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul says, you may have a right to do this, but you may want to lay down that right. You probably should lay down that right if it's going to harm uh, another brother or sister. So we're at the end now, and we're back to those three words, knowledge, conscience, and love. Sometimes decision-making is complex, but I think if we keep these three categories in mind, we'll be going down the right path. Should I watch that film? Should I eat in that restaurant that has a statue? Should I buy that luxury item? Should I drink that wine? Should I listen to that music? Should I get involved in that business deal? Knowledge, conscious love, knowledge. What does scripture say? Sometimes it's quite clear what our answer is. Conscience. It's not wrong for me to spend 25K on that necklace for my wife on Valentine's Day. I'm sure somebody in America did something like that this week. But I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a better way to, to spend that 25K. She seemed quite happy with a dozen roses. Um, or love. I have no problem eating in a restaurant that has a bar or even some statue of some kind. But if my friend has a problem with it, then I'm probably not going to schedule the, the guy's night out there. They'll come over to Casa Marita and I'll make some real food anyway. <laughs> the point is we want to look out on the interest of others. We want to do that which builds up our brothers and sisters. And so let's exalt our great God today. What a God we have. Let's submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who looked out for us, the one who's invited us to the ultimate meal. And today we celebrate that as we take the Lord's Supper and we anticipate the great meal to come. Those for whom Christ died, our brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. What a privilege it is to call you Father. The one from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We pray that you be glorified in our lives, in all of our endeavors. Help us to make decisions that glorify you and build up our brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, we magnify you, we extol you. As we take this meal, we're reminded of this passage. That these in this room are brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And with grateful hearts, we receive this today in Jesus' good name. Amen.